from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Ruth Foreman. Ruth is a published poet whose works include We Are the Young Magicians, Renaissance, Young Corn Rose Calling Out the Moon, and Prayers Like Shoes. She won the prestigious Barnard New Woman Poets Prize. You can also find her work on the Dawnbreaker Collective Anthology, Arise. Ruth was interviewed on NPR where she had the opportunity to read her work, Corn Rose Calling Out the Moon. I'll play the interview later in the program. I started the interview by asking Ruth where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Falmouth, Massachusetts. I was born and raised in Falmouth until I was nine years old. It was a wonderful childhood. It was in the country and not far from the water. It was the kind of childhood where I could run outside and be gone for most of the day and come back for dinner time or come back for lunch. And I was the youngest of four children. We had a lot of fun. I grew up with my mom. My parents were divorced by the time I was three or four And my mom was a very devout Christian, so had a Christian upbringing. So it was a fundamentalist Christian upbringing, would you say, or evangelical Christian upbringing? Uh, I guess fundamentalist. She had a a very interesting religious faith. It was kind of small, where they had a certain uniform that they would wear, and it was a, well, I felt like it was a very small organization. I think when I was very young, we were Lutheran, and then she made that change to a more fundamentalist organization. It was very interesting. They believed in faith healing and did not believe in going to the doctor or anything like that. But, I mean, I guess these things got really extreme. But for the most part, it was about your relationship with Christ and that being your salvation in terms of your health as well as your life. That was part of your belief system, too, growing up? Well, as a child, it was my mom's belief system, so I kind of went along with it. She took a lot of care to make sure we understood the Bible and memorized parts of the Bible, and every night before we went to bed, she would read to us from the Bible. So it's all I knew, and I loved my mom very much. Yeah, it was part of my life, my early years. Very, very strong part of my life. Until when? Well, uh, when I was nine, I moved to live with my father. The, the two youngest children, my brother and I, moved to live with my father in Rochester, New York. My father was a Baha'i. When I was leaving to live with my father, my mom said, be very careful of your father's faith 
anything that's not of Christ is of the devil. So I'll be praying for you, and you just watch out and be really wary and, and mindful. So I agreed. I said that I would be really careful about that. When I moved to Rochester and I saw my father's Baha'i community, it was a really wonderful thing to see because it was a very international community. There were people there from Micronesia and Ireland and a lot of African Americans and white and Asian. Everybody was kind of mixed together and everybody took care of each other like family. You know, even though I was about nine, at that point maybe nine or ten, I still recognized it as something that I, I really liked. I remember hearing about the teachings of the faith, and they made more sense to me as a child, because I always wondered, what happens to all of the people in the world who have not heard of Christ? Or what happened to the people who were around before Christ? I couldn't imagine that everybody who had not received Christ wouldn't be saved. And so it just, the Baha'i faith made more sense to me, even as a child. It felt like I don't know how to explain it, but something that I had already believed in anyway, oh, I ended up being open to the faith and going to a high school. And I think the thing that I really loved was the diversity. So did you live with your father until you were through high school? Yes, I lived with my father through high school. From, I guess, the age of 12 or 14, I had the opportunity to go to um, youth conferences. I met a friend who was going on a year of service to Antigua in the West Indies. She asked if I might want to come along. Ruth, what is a year of service? A high youth year of service is a year that youth will put aside to serve the Baha'i community anywhere in the world. It's a wonderful time to do it because as a youth, you probably are not tied down in terms of your job yet. You do have the time to set aside for service. I think sometimes people will just go individually to anywhere in the world to serve, but sometimes you can go with someone else. Well, the friend asked me to go on a year of service with her to Antigua. I was really open to the idea, and I knew that I had to get everything in order to make sure that my father would say yes. I deferred my freshman year of college. My father said he didn't want to get in the way of my wanting to serve. And surprisingly, I was very afraid to talk with my mom about it because I felt like I knew how she felt about the Baha'i faith. But I think over the years, she saw how the faith formed my brother and I and and the good experiences that we had being Baha'i. And she thought that it was a very good opportunity, and she actually thought that I should go on my year of service. So it was a surprise and a very big relief. So yes, I lived with my father until I was 17, and then I went on a year of service. What did your mother see in you and your brother that you think that made her have that impression? You know, it's a great question. I mean, I think part of it might have been just the idea of wanting to serve. Growing up Christian, one of the things that really, really impressed me that was the importance of kind of cleansing yourself of sin. Uh, When I went to Rochester and I saw the Baha'i community, 
I realized that there was also that outlook of serving humanity. I think my mom might have seen that in us. I think that might have impressed her some. She also had the chance to um, see some of the high prayers. Over time, over the years, I think she had the chance to understand a little bit more what the faith was about. What was the experience like when you first told your mother that you considered yourself a Baha'i? It's funny. My impression is that just that it was just over time, incrementally, my mother listened and saw a change in my brother and I, and she just more and more became open until a certain time. I remember after college, I went to visit my mom where she was living with a number of people. They, they all lived together in the same place, kind of like a commune. She very much accepted me being Baha'i, and I remember she even defended the faith to her colleagues. She showed them the, the prayer book, and she said, look, they believe in God, and read this prayer, and this is what they believe in. And, and then at a certain point, I would say, I guess years later, in 94, I'm jumping ahead, my mom passed away. She died of cancer, and my father was present at the funeral. He read a Baha'i prayer, which they felt was very beautiful. So over a long period of time, I saw changes that I never thought would happen. But I can't say there was this particular moment where, you know, I had to tell my mom, you know, that I was Baha'i and I was nervous. I I don't remember that. It was more just this gradual change. And pretty much your mother believed your father was going to hell when, when you left for Rochester? Absolutely. That's quite a transformation. Mm-hmm. So tell me about Antigua. <laughs> well, it was challenging. In what way? Up to that point, it was the hardest, was the hardest thing that I had ever done. I worked a lot of jobs at the same time, along with my friends. So it was challenging because they really put us to work. They were also really beautiful things. It was really beautiful to see another culture where it was very different from a mentality that I had grown up with in the States. One of our jobs was to work in a store, a small little corner store kind of place. I remember one of the kids coming in and buying a chocolate bar, and he was buying the bar for all of his friends to share. And it was just such a you know, beautiful, open way of being, and I don't think he even knew any other way of being. And that was so different from what I knew growing up, where I felt like as a kid and as a young person, it was all about getting yours and not sharing. And it was very refreshing to see people living a totally different way and not really even being aware of the kind of lifestyle or philosophies that I had grown up with as a young person. And it wasn't my first trip outside of the States, but it was my first time living for such a long time in another culture. And I really appreciated um, having my eyes opened in that way. And another thing that was challenging was, um, unfortunately, education was not a high priority for women. So it was all about, you know, how well you could cook or clean. We did a lot of cooking and a lot of cleaning. In certain moments, it felt like it was, 
we were expected to be subservient and there was no other way of being. And um, education was just not a, a really big deal for some people. So I came back to the state really wanting to get a good education because I felt like I saw a side of what could happen if I didn't, and I didn't like it. And what were your feelings before going to Antigua about education? I knew education was important. My father always instilled that in me, and I had an older sister who had gone to Harvard, another brother who was in the military and went to a really high-ranking military academy. So I, I knew that it was important. It was expected of me from my family to do it, but I never really got a sense of what another side of that would be like in a culture where education was not, for women anyway, was not as important. So I, I guess before I had gone to Antigua, yeah, it was okay. Just something that, you know, you do, important to do. When I came back from Antigua, I really threw myself into my education because I, I really saw it important in a different way. So where did you go? I went to Berkeley. And what did you study? Mass communication, and I did a minor in African-American studies. What were your goals for going into those two areas? Well, I felt like I really liked writing. I loved imagery, so I thought I would go into advertising. But I got a little sidetracked. While I was at Berkeley taking these social science classes, I also took creative writing classes to give myself something fun to do. And I totally fell in love with creative writing. I was a junior, so I decided I really, by the time I graduated college, I wanted to have a book of poetry. I had a, a chance to work with really, really accomplished and amazing poets while I was at school. And I did... A year after I graduated, I had a book of poetry that was nationally recognized and put me onto another trajectory. I guess. The book was called We Are the Young Magicians, published by Beacon Press. It was part of the Barnard New Women Poets Prize. Part of the prize was to have the book published by Beacon. Did you write prose or poetry when you were younger, growing up? I sure did. That, that is definitely something I did as a child. My mother encouraged it. She would put my poetry and my art on her wall in the bedroom, so I felt like I had my own gallery. I think when I was six, I did a book of poetry called Poems for Kids. Have you saved any of your old poems from... Would my dad ch- still has the book somewhere. He yeah. said he found it and he saved it for me. Uh-huh. So is there a a poem back in the pre-college days that you treasure, that you wrote? Pre-college days? Okay, when I was very young, I loved poetry and writing. When I was in college, uh, excuse me, when I was in high school, I got a little bit disappointed because a lot of the, the focus on poetry was on meter or form. I didn't really feel as connected to poetry. Maybe, you know, if I had a crush on somebody and I wanted to write about that, then I would you know, write a love poem or something. But I didn't really love poetry. I really fell in love with poetry my freshman year when I took a writing class from a Native American woman, Paula Gunn Allen, who really 
instilled in us that, you know, we all have a unique worldview. We all have something to say. Here are the ways that you can say the work in a way that people can really hear you. And here are the ways that you can make your, your words stronger. So the poetry, yeah, there was, it was about form, but it was really also about what it is that you had to share with the world, what it is that you had to say. And then I really fell in love with poetry again. Can you tell me about the Barnard Prize and how it is that you collected the poems that you did for We Are the Young Magicians? The Barnard Prize is a national prize given every year where it was awarded for a first book of poetry. It was a national competition. Every year, an accomplished poet will be the judge. And the year that I won, which was 1992, the judge was Cherie Moraga. Whoever won would have their work published by Deacon Press. And now, whoever wins their work is published by Norton. It's awarded for a manuscript, and if it wins, then the manuscript is turned into a book by Deacon in the early years, Deacon, or, or in the later years, Norton. Why did you title your collection, We Are the Young Magicians? We Are the Young Magicians is the name of one of the poems that's in the book. I felt like that title reflected the spirit of the entire book. I felt like, at the time... There was an energy and a spirit in young people, in young people of color, that I wanted to reflect or share in the book, which I feel like a lot of the poems did. That particular title from one of the poems best described the entire work. I think I, with all of my books, or with all of my collections, I choose a title poem represent the whole work. Can you read it for us? Yeah, I can. (laughs) I have to say, in the early work, it's not really the same anymore. I wrote this book when I was 19, 20. Mm -hmm. So there are some poems that have some swear words in them, and this poem does have one. (laughs) (laughs) So I can make a slight change for you, and I can read the poem. That'd be great. change for you. Thank you. We are the young magicians. Go sit down. We don't need no volunteers to disappear from a box trap door, a hole in the floor. We reappear folks you never seen before. Reach deep behind black velvet curtains. We don't need no trick cane to amaze. With a mere wave of the pen, we transform gray concrete to yellow brick road. We don't pull no rabbits from a hat. We pull rainbows from a trash can. We pull hope from the dictionary and teach it how to ride the subway. We don't guess the card in your hand. We know it. Aim to change it. Yeah. We know magic. And don't be so sure that card in your hand. That's great. I like that. So after you graduated from college, what did you do? I went on to graduate school. did two programs, one in African-American studies and one in film. I've always loved photography and I've always loved word. 
So I wanted to make sure that I did work that would put the two of them together. So I always wanted to work with film. Like I said, I did a minor in African-American studies. I really wanted to know our history. I wanted to be very grounded in the work that I wanted to do. I wanted to write about African-American history. I wanted to tell African-American stories. I think with my poetry, I comment on where we are. I also look for where we're going. I also look for a sense of hope. I also look for, you know, what can inspire people, what's really positive in a situation. So I just wanted to create work that would do that, and I wanted to present the work in visual ways. I'm a poet, but I also have the communications background, and I love working with other mediums. So I love working with film or theater or music or dance or visual art. I wanted to explore what it's like to combine mediums and to work with different mediums while presenting something that offered hope to people or inspiration to people. What did you do after you finished graduate school? I (laughs) took a corporate job. While I was in graduate school, I published another book called Renaissance and did a lot of work traveling and presenting poetry and also teaching creative writing workshops. Did this on different levels, at the university level and high school level, sometimes elementary school, and then also doing different things with communities. Um, While I was in graduate school doing African-American studies, I also had done evaluation. Someone asked me to come on to a corporate job doing some evaluation. So I thought that I could do both. I thought I could kind of be creative and do the evaluation as well at a very big foundation. I decided that I really wanted to go back to my creative work, and that's what I did. And I was fortunate to receive a pretty nice fellowship from a foundation that gives to artists and also nonprofit organizations. So with the fellowship, I was able to go and continue my creative work. Since then, I've continued to write and do creative writing workshops and lecture and teach. I published a children's book called Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. And I have a new book that just came out, which is called Prayers Like Shoes. I first wanted to ask you about Renaissance. What was the theme behind that book for you? That that was around the time that my mom passed away. My mom passed away while I was in film school. When I'm working through something, the way that I work through something, I write. I write my way through it. And so that book was really about dealing with death and coming through that process. There's a lot that has to do with family in the book and love and death and then coming through that mourning place to a rebirth or to a renaissance. It was the thing that helped me mourn. It helped carry me to another place where I could understand the world 
in a different way because I think when you lose a parent, your whole world changes. And for me, when my mom passed away, it was like my life before then was some kind of fairy tale. And somebody rolled up the world as I had understood it up to that point. And then I was presented with a new world. The book was a way to help me deal with walking through that new world without my mother. I think that I also had a lot of, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I feel like I had a lot of assistance from the unknown. I felt a certain rhythm that would come through my writing that I'd never experienced before. It was almost like a comforting, rocking kind of energy that would come through my work. And a lot of the work sounded like prayer as I was writing. And before that, with We Are the Young Magicians, my work was very hands on your hip, telling the world what you think about what's going on in the world. Renaissance was a much more quiet book. It was very reflective and asked a lot of questions. The energy that came through was like more of a comforting energy. And I, I felt like it was a book that reflected the process of growing up and also having a, a more of a connection with the unknown in the spiritual world. Can you read a selection from that? From Renaissance? Yeah. Sure. Even if you grab a piece of time, conjure something glowing. Take this day. You were born with hands for spinning, talent for dreams and making them feel. Roll the hours like yarn. Spin something that make you feel full and big and open to talk. Make this day your own square in your own life quilt. So shining, it brightened the whole of your year this far. Make this day like one of God's seven. As I mentioned earlier, Ruth published a children's book called Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. I asked Ruth what was the genesis for that work. The story comes from actually a poem in We Are the Young Magicians that was turned into a children's book. It celebrates summers in Philadelphia that I had as a child. I grew up in Cape Cod, but my father had a large extended family. We used to go to Philly in the summer. It celebrates our childhood in Philadelphia. You know, we didn't have a front yard or a backyard. We didn't have certain things. But what we did have was each other and really wonderful food, and so much fun. The book is a celebration of summers in Philadelphia, but it's also a celebration of looking at what it is that you do have rather than looking at what it is that you don't have. When I work with kids with that book, it's also an opportunity to ask them to share about their culture, because it's very much about, the poem is very much about African-American culture. And it's an opportunity to ask the kids to share about their culture, what they have. It's a really wonderful opportunity to see what kids have to say that they really appreciate that they have in their culture. So is this a storybook, or is it a collection of poems? 
It's a picture book. It's a picture book that is a story from one poem. Prayers Like Shoes. Tell me about that. Prayers Like Shoes. This is a book that took a while to come out. It talks about war and love, womanhood, and spirituality. It's a book that I finished quite a while ago, shortly after 2003. It talked about love, womanhood, and war, but I always felt like there was something missing in the book. My agent sent it out, and the book was passed on by a number of publishers. So I took the book back, and I really sat with it. I felt like something was missing, and I wanted to know what might be missing in this book. The book, I think, needed to have more of a sense of hope in it. And I added a section that had to do with looking forward, like Dawn. When I did that, it felt much more complete. So the book is really about reflecting a bit of the old world order, but also looking at where we're going and the sense of light and hope that we can have while we're going through so many difficult things. Ruth, can you explain to me what you mean by the old world order? I mean... Everything that we are doing in this world, contrary to being together as one people on this earth, in this book, it particularly is talking about some of the things that are going on with war or with injustice. And this is also a collection of poems? It's also a collection of poems, yes. And is there one that you could share with us? Or I'll read the title poem, I guess. I wear prayers like shoes. Pull them on quiet each morning. Take me through the uncertain day. Don't know what might knock me off course. Sit up in bed. Pull on the right. Then the left. Before shower. Before teeth. My mama's gift to walk me through this life. She wore strong ones, the kind steady your ankle. I know, because when her man left, her children gone, her eldest son without goodbye, they the only ones keep her standing. I saw her still standing. Mama passed on some things to me. My smile, sense of discipline, my subtle behind. The best she passed on, girl, you go to God and get you some good shoes. Because this life ain't steady ground. Now, I don't wear her. You take them with you, you know. But I suspect they made by the same company. Pull them on each morning. First the right, then the left. Best piece of dress I got.
Do you have any projects in the work now? Yes, I'm working on a novel. Oh, that's different. Yes, it will. <laughs> yes, it's different. I've been working on it a really long time. I think the difference between and poetry for me is that when I finish a poem, I know when it's done. It's a shorter piece. I can kind of put the stamp on it and, and say, it's done, let me go on to the next. And sometimes with fiction, I feel like I'm in the middle of an ocean and I'm not sure that I can see the end. So I've been working on it for a number of years. It's similar and it's different because I think in certain ways it's, it's got a poetic voice. It's different, obviously, in that it's fiction. But I don't know. It all, it all kind of comes from the same place. It just has a little bit of a difference in form. Is there anything you can say about it that describes it a little bit? Yes. It's about a woman's relationship with her dead husband. Any other projects? That one's got my eye for the most part, but I'm also working on a, another series for children. I really enjoy children's books, and I'd like to do more. It's kind of still formulating in my mind. Is there anything you haven't done that you'd like to do? My idea for the, the novel is that when I finish it, I'd like to adapt it for the screen and then work with film. I love film, and I think that that's the next place that I want to go. Once I finish the novel, I would love to finish it. I, I like to have things done before I kind of move on to the next area. Do you have any idea what your life would have been like if you hadn't had the Baha'i faith? You know, it's so funny. It's so, so hard to think about what my life would have been like before the, uh, without the Baha'i faith. I remember as a younger person wondering, what would I have been like? What would have happened if I didn't find the Baha'i faith, if I stayed living with my mom, for example? Because I feel like my life took such a different turn with the faith. I don't know, but I can talk about what I feel the contributions have been. I feel like I probably always would have been an artist, but the really beautiful prayers by Abdu'l-Bahá and the really beautiful writings by Abdu'l-Bahá, I feel, lent themselves even more to my wanting to be a poet because Abdu'l-Bahá's work has such beautiful metaphors in it that made me more open to the genre of poetry. And I also feel like the whole perspective of the faith in terms of looking forward to a place where we as human beings will be more in unity and just working towards that, knowing that as where humanity is going affects my outlook and affects my work. I think that informs my always looking for the light in a situation or trying to give people something that will help them be more resilient as we're going through whatever we're going through. Not, you know, sugarcoating anything, looking at things as they are, but at the same time, 
trying to offer a sense of hope. And I'm not quite sure I would have that so much if I wasn't a Baha'i. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for sharing your story, and good luck in your future endeavors. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ruth Foreman, a poet who has published the works We Are the Young Magicians, Renaissance, Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon, and Prayers Like Shoes. Ruth was interviewed on NPR for Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. She also was heard on NPR reciting Prayers Like Shoes, I thought I would include these in this program. So here is Ruth Foreman first being interviewed on NPR for Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon, followed by her recitation of Prayers Like Shoes. Enjoy. With such tragic news this week coming from a college campus, we thought we'd share this positive story from poet Ruth Foreman. She's more than a few years removed from her school days, but she recently dug up an old class assignment and thought, hey, this is great. Foreman ended up turning the paper into an illustrated children's book. The work recalls her own childhood of long summer nights spent in Philadelphia. It's called Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. Here's poet Ruth Foreman. Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. We don't have no backyard. Front yard neither. We got black magic and brownstone steps when the sun go down. We don't have no backyard, no soft grass, rainbow kites, mushrooms, butterflies. We got South Philly summer when the sun go down. Cool after lemonade and black-eyed peas, full after ham hocks and hot pepper greens. Cornbread cooling on the stove and more to watch than TV. We got double dutch and freeze tag and kickball. So many place to hide and seek and look who here, Punchinella, Punchinella. Look who here, Punchinella in a zoo. We got the ice cream man. We got the corner store, red cream pop, red nails, Rick James, the bump, the rock. And we know all the cheers. We got pretty lips. We got callous feet, we got healthy thighs and ashy knees. We got fine brothers, we are fine sisters, and yeah, we got attitude. We hold mama knees when she snap the naps out. We got grandma telling not to pull so hard. We got so clean cornrows when she finish. And cornbread, cool on the stove. So you know, we don't really want no backyard. Front yard neither. Because we got to call out the moon with black magic and brown stone steps. So Ruth, it is great to have you on. Thank you. That definitely takes me back to the summers I spent in Baltimore, um, hot summers and cornrows that were expected to last you the entire summer. So in our case, it was my grandma who was pulling hard because she she could make some cornrows last all summer. One of the things that really strikes me about your book and your poetry is that you take a situation which some people might consider lack, lack of a backyard, lack of a front yard, lack of 
the equivalent of what the PlayStation used to be, and you turn it into a situation of bounty. Was mm. that something you did on purpose? There's so much in our culture that we have to celebrate. And I was a student of June Jordan, and June Jordan would tell us, you can complain about a lot of things, but it's also part of our tradition that we celebrate. So how can you celebrate? And so I think I took that assignment. This came out of a writing assignment, actually. And I took that assignment and I said, okay, we didn't have a backyard. Because I think it was like right about your yard or something like that. And I was like, well, we didn't have a yard. And I didn't actually grow up in Philly. This is, um, I used to go there in the summer. And that's where my family was. So I would go visit them. And I was like, well, we didn't have a yard, but we had all this. So let me let me take this moment let me let me take these summers and open it up and really look at what it is that we had and that's what came out so philadelphia is the setting uh, a lot of this book and the the poem is about what kids do not just during the day but also the night and the yeah. magic of the night why did that appeal to you i don't know if i can explain what was so magical about dusk but that time of the summer was wonderful but then being able to be out on the steps and just be together and somebody's getting their hair corn road and some people are out playing in the street. Maybe it was just that the nights were warm and um, there was so much love in the air in the nights and so much, so much of a feeling of community that I remember I never wanted it to end. What about danger? So much of the messages that go towards kids today are don't play outside without an adult watching you. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's not really the context you bring to this book. Well, I think the context, it was a different time, too. There were so many of us together. There was never a thought of danger. There were so many cousins and kids together and um, so many aunts and uncles and neighbors keeping an eye out for us outside that it wasn't an issue. So there was definitely more of a feeling of um, community and everybody being out together instead of, um, you know, having to be careful in the way that, you know, parents have their children be careful now. You're obviously someone who is bilingual, probably more than that, but you can write in Ebonics and speak in the King's English. Mm -hmm. You chose to write this book in the black vernacular. Mm -hmm. Why? There is no way that I can convey that feeling in standard English. When we first, when I first presented the poem to the publisher, they asked would I consider translating it into standard English. And I knew that I couldn't do that because so much would be lost. So much of, the cult so much of our cultures are carried in our language. And for me, as a poet, I think that's one of the wonderful things about poetry. You can match a feeling as closely as possible by bending language, by turning it inside out, by listening and accurately representing what you're hearing. And there's no way that I could accurately represent that experience with standard English. Did you try? Did you try to rewrite it at one point? I did try a few um, stanzas, and my, the whole celebration was lost for me. Well, Ruth, it sounds like a great journey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Poet Ruth Foreman. Her new children's book is called Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon. It's illustrated by Kababi Bayak, and it's out now to celebrate National Poetry Month. Now, 
poet Ruth Foreman lets us into part of her daily spiritual practice with her poem, I Wear Prayers Like Shoes. I wear prayers like shoes. Pull them on quiet each morning to take me through the uncertain day. Don't know what might knock me off course. Sit up in bed, pull on the right, then the left, before shower, before teeth. They were my mama's gift to walk me through this life. She wore strong ones, the kind steady your ankles, I know, cause when her man left, her children gone, her eldest son without goodbye, they the only ones keep her standing. I saw her still standing. Mama passed on some things to me, my smile, sense of discipline, my subtle behind. But best she passed on, girl, you go to God and get you some good shoes, cause this life ain't steady ground. Now I don't wear hers, you take them with you, you know. But I suspect they made by the same company. Pull them on each morning, first the right, then the left. Best piece of dress I got. Poet Ruth Foreman is the author of the collection Renaissance. She lives in Los Angeles. enjoyed this program with Ruth Foreman, a published poet whose works include We Are the Young Magicians, Renaissance, Young Cornrows Calling Out the Moon, and Prayers Like Shoes. She won the prestigious Barnard New Women Poets Prize. You can also find her work on the Dawnbreaker Collective Anthology, Arise. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.